0: Good morning. It's good to be with you today. Um, I've been asked by the elders to resume our exegetical study on the book of Revelation. It's been a long time. Uh, If you remember correctly, or if you remember, back in December and January, the last time I was with you, we stretched out an introduction for Revelation chapter 21 over... I think seven Sundays. So we got through an introduction to the chapter. The beginning of chapter 21 was a fitting place to stop and ponder upon some of the things that we were experiencing or are experiencing in this day and time. So it coincided with the Advent season. If you remembered correctly, I introduced Revelation 21 by way of a series of messages that highlighted biblical principles in Proverbs chapter 11 and that focused upon some unsung heroes and details of the birth narrative of Jesus Christ. So those messages are now up online on this exegetical study podcast, and they're the most recent ones. So it's listed as parts 1 through 7, an introduction to Revelation 21. And the conclusion we came to, it's like God with Isaiah in the prophet Isaiah. God says through Isaiah, behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. And then he goes on to say, because I'm going to do this, what John sees here in Revelation 21, you can rejoice in the other things I'm going to do between now and then. And so that's what we, we tried to follow Isaiah's pattern there, and said, okay, John sees a new heaven and a new earth. That is our expectation, that is our hope. It does not die with us like the expectation of the wicked. The expectation of the wicked, like the CDC, the Democrat Party, the Republican Party, the federal government, NASA, all of these corporations of liars, their expectations will die with them but not the expectation of the righteous. So because God's going to create a new heaven and a new earth, we can rejoice in what He's going to do between now and then. So we talked about uh, the imminency of Christ's return, how the church is taught from its foundation, from its beginnings, that Christ could come for His church at any moment. We talked about imminency and how that should motivate us to live righteously, regardless of what those fools in Washington tell us to do. We talked about what we're looking for next on God's calendar. That's the rapture of the church. A biblical doctrine. What Paul calls a mystery. All mysteries mentioned in the, Old, in the New Testament or explained in the New Testament are enfolded in the Old. And so if the rapture truly is biblical, then we should be able to find it enfolded in the Old Testament. And we did. We, we studied all that. And that was all an introduction ...to chapter 1, or 21. So I'd encourage you to go back. I've done some reworking to that podcast where the episodes are numbered. Um, There's some in the middle. I mean, there's like 154 episodes. So there's some in the middle still lacking the number. But you can subscribe and actually go back. All of them are listed now. It used to be just 100, the 100 most recent. But you can go back now and be encouraged. I would encourage you to do something I did this week. I would encourage you to go back when you have some time. Podcasts are great. You can listen to them on your phone while you're going about other business. Where you stop, it'll pick it up right where you came back. Go back and listen to the first two messages of this study. This was over eight years ago, January of 2013. An introduction to the book of Revelation. Go listen to it. This was long before COVID. Long before um, Trump, the Trump era. Long before the fake president who can't put two senses together. Long before the National Guard is guarding the Capitol to scare the American people. Long before any of that. Before we even thought about that. Go listen to it. You'll be encouraged. Go listen to the message to the church at Ephesus. I believe that's episode five or six. And then follow it up with the messages to the church at Smyrna. We talked about why and how God uses persecution in the lives of believers. It's so appropriate to today. So I'm encouraged that God's Spirit taught us back then. It's not me that gave some great message or prophetic message. Without Christ, I can do nothing. But God was teaching us and preparing us eight years ago for these days. You know, people can accuse me as a preacher of a lot of things, and they'd be right. You know, I I commented to Eric uh, on his Facebook the other day that, man, you're still wet behind the ears. You're a young buck. And I think he thought I was saying there's a lot you need to learn. I wasn't talking about that. I was saying, man, your age, man, 25 is young. I could ride a bicycle across America when I was 25 and barely break a sweat. Now that I'm 45 and I'm trying to walk across America, ooh, I'm having a hard time. So enjoy your youth, guys, because it's fleeting. It doesn't matter how great a shape you're in. I've worked out since I was in high school. It doesn't matter. You can't avoid the way of all flesh. You can't break the spell of aging. But anyway, in our exchange, I just said, Look, brother, I can... I can teach you a lot of things, probably more, about how to screw it up, how to screw something up and then have to fix it than to do it right the first time. That's what I can teach you most about. But people can accuse me of a lot of things, and some of them are legit. I'm very prideful, or can be. I can be very reactionary. I can blow a gasket pretty quick or be impatient. But one thing I'm not is inconsistent. I'm consistent. The message I've been preaching since God called me to preach is a consistent message that has not changed. Go back and listen to the first message in this podcast eight years ago and tell me if this message has changed. I'm, so if I've got one thing in my favor, it's consistency, and I give God the glory for that. We need to be consistent Christians. And we're, because of our inconsistency, The church has failed the American people during this COVID tyranny and all this garbage. And we've thrown out our liberties and our freedoms and we've betrayed the people we claim to love. But we haven't been inconsistent in this teaching. And I think you would be encouraged. I like to go back and listen to old messages sometimes just to see, you know, what the Lord's taught me, how I might have grown, what I might have said that Could have been said better or maybe needs to be corrected. Man, if I hear something in there that needs to be corrected, I'm going to correct it publicly. But it's also encouraging to see a consistent testimony. And that's not my testimony. That's the testimony of this church. So, guys, I've made it easier to access those things. Go back and review a little bit. It's fun. We can take a break. Don't listen to talk radio. Don't listen to these Republican fools, man. I mean, yeah, they may stand up there and talk a big talk about supporting Israel and all that stuff, but they're liars. They didn't support election integrity on January 6th. Stop listening to them. Listen to God's Word be preached. You'll be encouraged. It's like picking up a new... It's it's almost prophetic, the things we've talked about in here. Not just me, the the elders and the others that have preached. It's almost prophetic. Everything we know is going to happen because the Scriptures say it is happening right now. It's, It's... exciting times to be alive, but so concluded our introduction to Revelation 21, so we're actually going to get into the text today. I I, I was talking to a gentleman on the side of the road this week as I'm continuing to walk across America as God's commanded me to do, and we were talking about how all of these plans and programs that American churchianity has um, pushed upon us going back into the 90s that where where is the fruit of these things? Where is the fruit of the moral majority, the promise keepers? All of this stuff. Where is the fruit of that? It, there is no fruit that remains because the state of the American church is worse now than it was then. Amen. And we were just talking, and he said something very profound. He said, "I've come to see in my Christian walk that there's only one time tested method that works." There's only one, and we never learn. In the church, it's the faithful preaching of God's Word verse by verse. And on the street, it's the faithful preaching of the gospel message. That's profound. It's true. And that's what we try to do here is let God's Word speak to us verse by verse. And it demands that we stop and ponder things instead of rushing through it. So I don't know how far I'll get today. Um, I do want to briefly, uh, you guys have asked us to share testimonies each week as we go out to walk across this country and to warn this wicked nation about the judgment of God that's coming. Um, We had a fruitful week last week. Um, The last time I was with you, let's see if I can, that's what our route looked like. The last time I was with you, and this is what it looks like after this week. So, as you can see, um, or it might be said, we're, aren't you guys going out of the way? Well, I don't know how you go out of the way when you got to walk thousands of miles anyway. But this past week was fruitful. We had our, lo- our, our, our longest distance in a week. We covered 111 and a half miles um, from Cottonville, a little crossroads in Stanley County. We started on Monday morning early, and we made it to a place called Brookhaven Road in northwest Iradell County. So that's quite a, quite a haul. We had 58 encounters, gospel encounters, on the highways and byways, and we were able to give out four Bibles to folks that needed one. That brings our total to 600.32 miles. So Friday afternoon, sweating like a horse, tired, weary, I hit 600 miles, and then I walked another .32 miles because (laughs) the SAG vehicle was down the road a little bit. Uh, we've We've had over 350 encounters with folks regarding the gospel, 21 Bibles, and one lost sheep from the house of Israel. It's been a blessing. This past week, there are two things I remember, and I'll sum it up this way. I won't go into a lot of detail. There's a phrase I heard from an old album of a band from the 70s that I like to listen to. And it was a live album. And they get to bantering between songs about midway through the first disc. And it's this banter that at the same time, it sounds childish and foolish, but at the same time, it also has an air of wisdom and depth. So I don't know if you've ever seen something that, is ugly and yet it's incredibly beautiful at the same time. I don't know if you can understand that. Or maybe you just don't think crazy stuff like that. Maybe I'm warped. But bantering about what I... It's just childish, but yet it's profound. And in this bantering, one of the band members just kind of shouts out this phrase, sheer profundity. And that's always stuck with me. When, when When I'm confronted with something that seems elementary and yet profound at the same time, I've often caught myself thinking or saying sheer profundity. And I had a couple of encounters this week that would just sum up the week. Um, Twice within a 24-hour period, I met Christian people who shared a testimony about their local church. These people weren't related. It wasn't the same church. It wasn't even the same county. Both of these individuals attended a church with a pastor. Now, remember, a pastor is a shepherd of a flock, right? And in both of these churches, when the COVID came, the pastor was so afraid of getting sick that he quit and left the church. Just resigned. Just up and quit. And so I'm hearing this from two individuals within 24 hours about two local churches that probably aren't that far away as the crow flies because a guy can't walk that far that quick. And I'm just scratching my head. Sheer profundity. You know, when I think of a shepherd, I think of David the shepherd boy. He was willing to go out and fight Goliath when everybody else was scared to death. And they're like, you can't, do, look at you, you can't even wear this armor." He's like, wait a minute, when I watched the sheep and the bear or the lion came, your servant went out And fought and grabbed that old bear by the beard and slew him. David was a shepherd boy and he was willing to go out and meet the lion and the bear to protect his flock. If anything, isn't a pastor supposed to exist to protect his flock? To look out for the well-being of his flock and to put himself at risk on behalf of his flock? And you call yourself a pastor and you quit because you're scared of a virus with a 99% survival rate and you can lay your head down at night on your pillow not scared of the one that holds the galaxies in his hand and holds the sword that's going to judge you. Sheer profundity. See, I remember that about this week. Bewildering. And yet there are other things that just were profound. Two encounters. Two encounters where I walked away saying sheer profundity. I met an individual, and we were talking about the state of the church today, and he used an illustration that I think is so appropriate. And I understand it because I've ridden in these races before. Have you guys ever watched a bicycle race, or have you ever watched clips from like the Tour de France, or any of those things? I know this because I rode a race one time, it was a 157 mile race that went through the night. It started at Badwater in Death Valley, the lowest elevation in the continental United States. And the finish line was the end of the road at the trailhead to Mount Whitney, which is the highest mountain in the continental United States. It involved three 5,000-foot climbs, and it took me all night. We started at 3 o'clock in the afternoon in Death Valley. The temperature was close to 100 degrees. And we, we began. And at the very beginning, I was tangled up in a mess of riders, this mass of riders. Everybody's gung-ho. Everybody's going to ride this race. And you're crowded, and you're trying to maneuver p- for position. People are drafting off of other riders, and it's just a mass. It's a mass. Everybody's pushing forward together. Have you seen that? But what eventually happened? Do all the riders in that race finish? No. There's only one winner. And most people aren't out there to win. When I did that Whitney Classic years ago, my objective was not to win. I wasn't a bicycle racer. My objective was to finish. To finish, no matter how long it took. And that was everybody's objective when they started or they wouldn't have done the race. But as time goes by, and you begin to hit the hills and the mountains, that mass just fades away. And what's left is what they call in these races the selection. It's those who are going to finish. Some will finish ahead of others, but they're going to finish and cross the finish line. The selection. The selection is a group of riders that is far smaller than the the group that began. And I can vouch for this. I got ahead of the mass early on. Now, there were folks way ahead of me. Late afternoon, I was kind of lonely. I climbed that first 5,000-foot pass up to Towns Pass um, alone, and it was boring. So when I got to the SAG station at the top, I decided I had two friends behind me. I'm going to wait on them, and we're going to endure together. So I waited. They caught up. We rode together through the night climbed up and over another pass, got down in the long pine as the, as the sun was rising and climbed and crossed the finish line together. Now, we weren't first by any means, but there were a whole slew of riders that started out that never came. They never crossed the finish line. There were a few that came after us, but as far as those that finished after that, we went down to the park in Bishop and we had a little cookout and everybody who finished got a medal. And I was astounded at how few medals were given out. So many quit and didn't finish. Isn't that a picture of the church today? All of this mass of American Christians spoiled in their Christianity and we love God and loving on everybody and all of this and that. And then this COVID stuff comes. And we get a little scared. It's the hill. And then what happens? The mass fades away. And all that's left is the selection. The true believers who fear God and not man. Man, what a powerful illustration. And this was just a guy sharing this with me on the side of the road. And I thought about how I see this in that ride I rode. Sheer profundity. I walked away. Lord, help me to finish. Not just to walk across America, but my race for the Lord. we got to finish, guys. Mm -hmm. Sheer profundity. There was another encounter I had. When I cross an interstate highway on a bridge, I like to cross bridges that don't have exit ramps. Just a bridge. And I like to just, there's interstate traffic, I'll just go stand at the rail of the bridge and I'll just hold that cross aloft. It says, repent or perish, get ready. And I'll just stand there until I, you know, I might say I'm going to stand here until I hear five people honk at me. And I'm just going to stand there and people are driving under the bridge. They see it. And people honk. And I've got five honks on I-77. I turned and faced the other direction, got five honks, and I said, all right, I'll go. So I was standing at I-77 the other day and this car came by and saw me holding the cross of law. And she rolled down the window and she said, what are you doing? And I said, ma'am, I said, I'm just an old preacher. God told me to walk across America and I'm warning this wicked, damnable nation that there's a flood coming. God's judgment's coming. And we need to repent and get right. And there's no way to get right except through Jesus Christ, the same Christ that our founding forefathers trusted. And she was like, wow, that's great. I said, are you a believer? And this is where the sheer profundity came. She said, yeah, I'm a believer. You know, I said the words and did the little thing, you know, when I was a kid. But on after that, God woke me up. And I thought, sheer profundity. Isn't that what God does when you get saved? He wakes you up. Man, that's profound. I don't know if that that lady even understands that I walked away from there just thinking about that. What a simple, profound description of what salvation is. God wakes you up. You can say the words. You can pray the little prayer. You can repeat after me. You can walk the aisle. You can do all of this stuff. But if God doesn't wake you up, you're still asleep. And when God does wake you up, you're awake. So... Maybe, just maybe, in the midst of all of this mess, God is waking up people out of slumber that leads to ineffectiveness or out of slumber that's leading to death in hell. What a profound thing. Sheer profundity. Pastors quitting because they're scared of a virus, don't care anything about their flocks, the selection, and God woke me up. Those are profound things that just kind of sum up the week for me. So I praise God for that. Revelation 21. Eric and, I, and Bethany are going to go out three days this week. Probably going to go back out Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. It's going to be a roundabout route. We may touch Wilkes County, come down through Alexander. There's not a, very many places to cross the Catawba River, believe it or not. Highway 16, Highway 127. Guys, people are crazy drivers on those roads. And there's no shoulders. So there's one other option. It's called Grace Church Road. I don't know if you guys know where that is. It's a little bit west of uh, 127. comes down into Caldwell County. It's probably out close to where Graham, uh, uh, Graham and his, uh, Grant and his family uh, used to live. I didn't get to go over there because I had, I had uh, vertigo that night. But it comes down, and then you come into 321 just on the other side of the river. Uh, uh, there. So that might be the way we go. Come back to Hickory, back to Conover and Newton. And I got a text from the post lady at the Conover post office the other day asking me if I'd please walk by there so they can get a photo op. And I thought I might just walk in there with my cross and my upside down flag. Might just do it. I've been invited. Maybe I should. Revelation 21 John here, chapter 21 and 22, let me sum them up for you. They go together. This is the end of the book. This is the end of our journey. Here in the first two verses, John sees two things. And then in verses 3 through 8, he hears two things or two messages. And then one of the angels says, hey, John, come here. Let me show you something. Before we wrap this up, come here a minute, let me show you something. And so from 21 verse 9 through 22, 5, we have the Lamb's wife, the new Jerusalem. The city whose builder and maker is God that Abraham looked for. And then beginning with verse 6 in chapter 22 and to the end of the book, we're transported back to John's day. Back to the Isle of Patmos where he was meditating on the Lord's Day in chapter 1. And we're given a concluding exhortation by Jesus Christ himself. So we've been through the things which thou hast seen. Chapter 1 verse 19 is the theme and the outline of the book as Jesus gave it to John. If we'd stick by that outline, we wouldn't get in any trouble and we wouldn't get confused. Write three things, the same as you have seen. John saw Christ as he stands in relationship to his church in chapter 1. The things which are the messages to the seven churches. Those churches were local. Those churches were, were a, an admonishing warning to all churches at all times. Christ has taken inventory of his churches. They're a personal message to us living today and they're prophetic. The things which are the church age, chapters 2 and 3. Then in chapter 4, verse 1, at the end of the church age, John sees a door opened in heaven and he's raptured. And who does he find in the throne room? The church. It's been raptured out. Thou hast redeemed us out of every tribe, tongue, and nation. Then we have the tribulation period. It is Jesus Christ, the Lamb, who opens the title deed of the earth. It is Jesus who unleashes Antichrist on this world. It's judgment. It's judgment. The Antichrist is called the rod of God's uh, anger in Isaiah chapter 10. It's Jesus that unleashes the judgment, which is the rise of Antichrist, the rise of the beast, and then the seals and the trumpets and the vile judgments. And we see the fall of mystery Babylon, the fall of commercial Babylon. We see the world system come crashing down, and then we see the heavens open. And then we see the Messiah return, and He sets up a kingdom, a thousand years. And then we see the dead raised, a resurrection of damnation. We see the great white throne judgment, and then John sees a new heaven and a new earth. Our ultimate expectation. In chapter 65 and verse 17 of Isaiah, God says, Behold, I create a new heaven and a new earth. What John is seeing here is not new. Revelation is not new. Much of what Daniel writes to the Jew, John writes to the Gentile. Isaiah saw these things. And because God said I create a new heaven and a new earth, he can say he says through his prophet, be glad and rejoice forever. And then God says to the prophet, now let me give you a taste. I'm going to create a new heavens and a new earth, now I'm going to give you a taste of it. Come look at this new Jerusalem. Isaiah 65. Isaiah 66, God says, just as the new heavens and the new earth will remain before me, so shall thy seed. There are things that exist in this present creation that will bridge and transcend into the new heavens and the new earth. One is the nation of Israel. Says it right there in Isaiah 66. The word of God will transcend into the new heaven and the new earth. The lake of fire is an eternal burning. The beast and the ant- the beast and the false prophet are cast in there after the tribulation, the coming of Christ. They're still alive there, a, hundred, a thousand years later. And then the wicked dead are raised and cast for all eternity. And Isaiah 66, in the context of a new heaven and a new earth, speaks of that eternal burning that is a constant reminder of God's judgment on sin and His perfection. The church also endures. The church is there in her home in that millennium, in that same home, that same wife endures into the new heavens and the new earth. These are things that bridge. So because they bridge, we can rejoice in these things now. Peter says, in light of what John sees here, Behold, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Peter asks an important question. He says in chapter 3 of his second epistle, Now we look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwell righteousness. Exactly what John sees here. And then, a, But a couple of verses earlier he asked a question, a rhetorical question that has an obvious answer. Seeing that all of this stuff we're looking at is going to be dissolved, the flood that's coming isn't a flood of water. It's a flood of fire where the elements will melt with fervent heat. God is going to burn it up one day. So knowing that, what manner of persons ought we to be? Clinging to it. Clinging to things that we cannot save, that we cannot protect. Or pilgrims like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Abel, Enoch, Moses, Moses' parents. All of these listed there in the great hall of faith. Those who confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on this earth. Is that how we live? We ought to be able to read Revelation 21, this first verse, and say, you know what? I'm a stranger and pilgrim here, and I'm going to start living like it and stop clinging. A stranger and a pilgrim isn't a vagabond or a fugitive that's hiding out and stocking up. He's one that lives and goes about his business, and his life is in God's hands, and he's not looking for a city that hath foundations, he's looking for a city that has foundations whose builder and maker is God. Walking across America is a great time to memorize scripture. I memorized scripture when I rode a bicycle across America three times years ago. And it's amazing how that comes right back to you. 2 Timothy, the epistle, came back to me pretty quick. I'm not going to take time to recite it here. You don't want me to do it, I'm not going to. But I'm working on Hebrews 11, almost done. And man, it's just motivating. John sees a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. That word there in the original language, passed away. There's a great illustration if you've ever been to the desert. And I've seen it a million times. Those long ribbon highways that drop down. I saw it though that night I rode that bicycle ride. Dropping off a town's pass. Going across Panamint Valley. And I'm looking ahead and the road eventually disappears. Because, not because there's some kind of curve there, but because it fades. It's perspective. It's like the road just fades. Because you can't see farther than a certain amount. But yet I could see in the great distance... Lights coming, dropping down off of uh, Father Crowley down into Panamint Valley. Just forever, these lights coming. And it was kind of creating more light pollution. And I'm like looking at the heavens and I'm thinking, man, hurry up, get by. That car just keeps on coming toward me. It takes forever. It takes forever. And then finally, it passes by. And once it passes by, it's gone. It's gone. Never to even be remembered again. It just passes in the night. That's the language being used here by John. And he's told to write, the first heaven and the first earth will pass away, just like a car on a desert highway in the night. Why are we clinging to it? Why are we putting our hope in it? Human government can't fix this mess in America. I've told people this many times along my walking route. You can't fix a spiritual problem with a, with a financial or a political solution. A spiritual problem needs a spiritual solution. All this all politics and elections. I'm sick and tired of hearing about elections. I don't care about 2022. I don't care. I don't care. The only reason these Republicans are out there blathering on about supporting Israel is they want your vote. When are we going to stop believing the liars? First heaven and the first earth were passed away, and guess what? There was no more sea. Well, now I've talked about this briefly because we've seen a sea in Revelation already. We've seen a sea. So we have to ask ourselves, what is John talking about here? Is he talking about the Atlantic Ocean or the Pacific Ocean? Well, when you read Scripture, you need to take it in context. You need to look at the context of the whole book. Has there already been a sea in Revelation? Yeah. Popped up in chapter 4. The sea has popped up in chapter 15. It was popped up in chapter 19. And here it pops up again. No more sea. Guys, he's not talking about the Atlantic or the Indian or the Pacific or the Arctic Ocean. The sea he's talking about would make these things look like little old puddles. What is he talking about? He's talking about what Genesis calls the firmament The sea above the firmament. You know, Job and his friends thought they knew a whole lot about God's creation, and then God steps on the scene, says, "Let me tell you a few things about my creation. You guys don't have a clue. Job, the great deep, the sea above the firmament. That barrier between God's throne, God's tabernacle, and His created order. That barrier won't be there in the new heaven and the new earth. And how do I know that's what it's talking about? Because what does John immediately see after that? And I. In other words, the and in verse 2 follows from that last phrase. Because there was no sea, this, the tabernacle of God comes down. Job tells us that the face of the deep in the heavens is frozen. We're also told that God's throne is hidden by the waters above the firmament, a place where time ends. All molecular activity ceases at a temperature called absolute zero. We're also told in Job that God spread out the sky or the firmament as a molten looking glass. This is the sea John is talking about. The barrier between God, His heaven, His throne, and His created order is removed permanently in the new heaven and the new earth. You see, the people at Bible thought they could build a tower and pierce that firmament and invade God's kingdom. That's what they thought. That same spirit of Bible exists today. It's never changed. How arrogant are we as Americans? We think we've got the heavens and all of this figured out as if it's certain and it's not. We think that we don't need God. We can paint a picture of the universe that has no place for God and that we can be God. We think that we can do exactly what you see illustrated in the very familiar logo of a corporation called Disney. Look at that Disney logo. What what is the tower doing? It's piercing the sky. It's showing an invasion of heaven. That's exactly why I'm not a conspiracy theorist, guys. I'm a realist. There's been a great conspiracy since the Garden of Eden to undermine God and His Word. But the only way that anything gets through that is when God removes it and God comes down. Men aren't going to build their way to heaven and set up shop. God's going to come here. And His tabernacle is going to be with men. That is the seed that John is talking about. The immediate context, Revelation uh, tells us that the, the city of God comes down. In chapter four, we, John sees the throne of God atop a sea of glass. Later in chapter 15, that sea of glass is mingled with fire as the martyrs are pleading with God Execute your judgment. It's time for vengeance. And the sea is mingled with fire. What is it doing? It's melting. It's melting. Mm-hmm. Chapter 19, what does John see? And I saw heaven opened. It was opened. And then, the, and then the one alien invasion that Satan and Antichrist is worried about because they know it's the only one takes place. And that's why they want to unite this world. They know there's an alien invasion coming. It's not green men or tall grays or short graves or any of this garbage. It's the Messiah who leads and the new Jerusalem is the mothership. And it's coming. And they think they can stop it. They can't. The heaven opens. The Messiah comes back. He sets up a kingdom. And then the kingdom is fulfilled. God... Destroys the present creation. He creates a new heaven and a new earth. And now there's no more need for the firmament with waters above and below because God makes his dwelling, his tabernacle with men. No more sea. You see, that great deep that's spoken about in Genesis 1 the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the deep, the earth was without form and void. It's out of that, below God's throne, that He said, Let there be light. And there was light. And there was darkness. And then God created a firmament to divide the waters that were above the firmament from the waters that were below the firmament. And He called the waters above heaven and the waters beneath sea or the sea. And then He created the land. Then He created the earth. Then He created the sun and the moon. Do we believe God? I mean, are we just sitting out here in an endless expanse of nothingness? Or is the heaven God's throne and the earth is his footstool, just like God says? I believe what the scriptures say. I believe this sea is that firmament that will one day be removed and God will dwell amongst men. Amen. Praise the Lord. We, we have to pause for a minute. I don't want to skim over this. I don't want to be like the creation scientist who's afraid. I don't want to be like the preacher who doesn't want to touch on something because he's scared to death somebody might get offended or he might not get a paycheck. But I care about truth. You know, I had a guy tell me this past week that, man, you're just one of these guys that just has to cling on to stuff. And you've got to find a, a lie or a conspiracy somewhere. I said, no, I'm not one of those guys. I said, I'm just one of those guys that cares about truth. Why is this stuff important? I said, it's important to me because it's true. There was a famous American writer. He wrote a great tractate tape called Civil Disobedience. His name was Henry David Thoreau. I'd encourage you to read that. It's free on iBooks. Interesting read. Civil Disobedience. It's exactly how we ought to respond to our wicked, tyrannical federal government today. But he said this, he said, rather than love, than money, than fame, give me truth. That's just, that's the way I'm wired. I want truth. I want to know. I want to deal with it. But it seems as if we never deal with there are two things that Seminary professors, pastors, church leaders won't touch. And that's why Revelation doesn't get preached like it should be. That's why Genesis doesn't get preached. They they don't want to touch biblical chronology because it flies in the face of evolutionary historic chronology. And they don't want to touch biblical cosmology, what God says about His creation, because it flies in the face of NASA. So... Are we going to be those types that just avoid God's truth because we don't want to deal with it? Or are we going to look at it and be confronted with it and believe God and take Him at His Word? Now, I wish this was on tape. It's not. And I don't know if you guys remember this, but way back before Revelation started, one of the first messages I ever preached in this church, it might have been when we were over there at Tim and Chris's house. I preached from Psalm 33 and I talked about biblical chronology and what does the Bible say about the age of the earth and human history. And it's not recorded, but I've got the notes. And we looked at Psalm 33. And back then, I talked about how Satan, from time immemorial, has wielded a weapon against to try to attack and undermine God's truth. God's word is a sword. A double-edged broadsword. Satan's is what I call a trident. Who knows what a trident is? A three, like a pitchfork almost. A trident. A trident of lies that Satan has wielded going all the way back to the Garden of Eden against the word of God. To undermine our faith in its authority. About the turn of the 20th century, there was a war in Western society that began to transition from the dark corners to mainstream in terms of this tragedy and this undermining of God's authority. Guys, we can sum up all of the scriptures. I'll tell you this. The most important issue in all of Scripture, don't, don't, don't gasp or sigh and think this guy's a heretic, hear me out. The most important issue in all of Scripture is not the cross of Christ, it's not the redemption of man either. Those things are a part of the most important issue. The most important issue is the authority of God. The Creator and the authority of His Word. Because if His Word has no authority and can't be trusted, then how can we be sure of what His Word says about Christ, His redemption, the cross, and the resurrection? God says there's one thing He's lifted above His name. It's His Word. And the Word was made flesh in Christ Jesus. So the central issue, the central point of conflict from the Garden of Eden to now is God's authority. Either He's the authority or we are. And that's where things broke down for Adam and for Eve. Satan knew just how to tempt Him. Wait a minute. Yea, God hath said. Okay, you know, God hath said, don't eat of this fruit, you'll die. But what He really meant is... If you eat it, you're going to be like him. You can be God's. And it says that Eve looked at it and said, man, that looks good. for It's pleasant to the eyes. It looks good to taste. It's one desire to make one wise. The very uh, pillars of sin John talks about, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. She took it and ate. And she discovered that it didn't make her like God at all. It brought death into the world. Adam took it and ate. And we often think that Adam blamed the woman. He didn't blame the woman. He blamed God. Mm-hmm. It's the woman you gave me that did this. And from that time till now, it's all about God's authority. And Satan has wielded a trident against his word. And, and, and the, the spikes of this trident, and this doesn't go back to Charles Darwin. This goes way back. Men have taught and believed... Charles Darwin was a plagiarist. He was a philosopher, not a scientist. And most of his theory was plagiarized from those that had come before him. But the trident, this weapon Satan uses to attack God's word, the central spike, this is what I preached years ago, is evolution. This idea that we as the creation have come into existence in and of ourselves. We don't need God. You know, that goes back to the Greek philosophers and Babylon and all that to Bible. It's nothing new. Evolution is the central spike in, that is Satan wields to undermine the foundation of the Bible. It's authority. It's the central spike. One of the other spikes, I argued, was the issue of historical chronology. Satan tries to attack the, the authority of God's Word through chronology, history a historical chronology that assumes evolution and that presumes and interprets things not based on objective truth but on a presupposed idea about how old things are. And so that for that reason, preachers won't touch chronology because they're afraid that, oh, this might be a contradiction and all that. I've never found a contradiction in the scriptures, in the chronology. What I have found is what God puts there. He puts there for a reason. And it's, Easily explained, but we're just too lazy to study. And then the third spike would be what I call textual criticism. This is what you get confronted with in seminary and in college. It's why you have a plethora of Bible versions where people try to make God's word say what they want it to say. This is where Satan attacks the very words of the Bible. You know, he attacks the foundation, then he attacks. The context, historical context, then he attacks the very words. And we talked about textual criticism. Higher criticism attacks the books and the authors. Well, this guy couldn't have wrote this, and there's two Daniels, and Matthew copied from him, and this, that, and the other. Then there's lower criticism, which attacks the words and the readings themselves. And that's why you've got umpteen number of Bibles on the market today. And an ignorance of the Bible, that's, prof- that's sheer profundity compared to back when we just had that one Bible. One English Bible, that, king, that, that King's English. Textual criticism treats the Bible like any other book. And it's amazing how conservative Bible scholars will take an evolutionary framework and apply it to God's inspiration and preservation of His Word, as if God who inspired it couldn't preserve it. Mm-hmm. It's foolishness. The trident of lies. And so I went on back then to look at biblical chronology and what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say about the age of the earth and the chronology? And we trace it back based on biblical dating. We can place the earth. Now our calendars aren't absolute. They're not absolute. And that's why there's drift. And we talked about, I don't know if y'all remember, I talked about the Gregorian calendar and the Julian calendar and all this. We can place the creation of the world at roughly 4,000 B.C. Oh, my goodness. That's a fairy tale. You're not a scientist. You deny science. That's what usually comes. But that's the biblical chronology. And we talked about it. And then I listed a whole slew of evidence, observable, testable evidence in creation that demands an answer because it agrees With the Bible's chronology. And we summarized all that. Unfortunately I can't point you to a podcast. But I remembered. I still have the notes. And I was thinking about that this week. I talked about that trident as Satan's weapon. His weapon. Evolution. Man-made history or historical uh, chronology. And textual criticism. A trident of lies. And this week as I was reading this passage and thinking about things concerning this new heaven and this new earth, I thought, you know, maybe a better way to describe this weapon of the devil is not so much what he's using, but what he's attacking, what his trident attacks. I talked about the trident as a weapon, but think about what it's used for. What are the three areas that Satan attacks most when it comes to our biblical worldview? Well, the Bible's chronology, yeah, he attacks the Bible's chronology. It's history. Can't be trusted, even though archaeology proves it to be true time and time again. He attacks the biblical text. God inspired it in the originals, but He's not able to preserve it. Even professors I had in college and seminary fed me that garbage because they're not willing to take the step that would cause them to get criticized and lose their tenure and maybe affect their paycheck. But what's the central... What's the central thing that makes these other... Issues of attack come by default. And that's biblical cosmology. Satan has attacked God's cosmology. God's created order as he reveals in the scriptures from time immemorial. And guys, if you don't think these entities today exist to attack the biblical record of creation, then you are delusional. You know, we, I was have, Matthew and I were having a conversation with a guy on Facebook. I normally don't do it. Some guy, I don't even know who he is, never had a word to say about me. Uh, praying for your ministry, a word of encouragement. But man, they come out of their holes when you challenge them with something. And he was going back and forth. And we were talking about different things and he said, this is what your problem is. Your issue is that you just believe that all NASA and the government can do is lie. You don't believe they can tell the truth. That's the issue. And I said, Yep, you summed it up right. That's exactly right. They can't tell the truth. They're liars. Just like the Babel cadre. Liars. Just like Satan in the garden. Liars. Just like Babylon, the world system that has fallen. Liars. No, you can't trust them. Does that mean we know everything about God's creation? No. But can we trust what his book says? Or do we have to do backflips with the text to try to make it agree with a model that is rooted in evolution? Mm -hmm. So Satan has been attacking biblical cosmology, biblical chronology, and the biblical text from time immemorial. Yea, God hath said. And down through the centuries, guys, there's been a lot of professing Christians that are card-carrying members of the yea, God hath said society. you got to watch them. Mm -hmm. They'll run and hide and quit their job, shepherding the flock when COVID comes. These are card-carrying members. Masons, Jesuits, occultists. I mean, they're they're card-carrying members of the yea, God hath said society. The oldest society known to man, founded in the Garden of Eden. Satan attacks biblical cosmology to the point we won't even talk about it. We don't even want to talk about it. But guys, when I read Revelation 21.1 and I take these things in the context of what Job says, of what happens here with the new Jerusalem, then I have to call into question what I've been told about the universe. Am I afraid? Why are we afraid to do that? Why is the creation scientist of the world afraid to do that? Why does he claim that six days in Genesis 1 are literal and to be understood exactly what they say, but yet not what God says in in, in Genesis 1 about the firmament? Not what he says about the sun and the moon. That's not literal. That's poetic. Well, guys, that's contradictory. That's inconsistent. But when you got paychecks and endowment funds, museums and all that stuff at stake, man, it's amazing what people won't talk about because they got to protect the paycheck. I've been guilty of it. After what I've seen, after the lies we've seen fed to us this last year, we ought to be questioning everything. Mm -hmm. We ought to be tracing our steps, going back a little bit and asking ourselves, what have these devils been lying to us about? Also, but we can trust God's Word. All of these things, biblical cosmology, biblical chronology, and the biblical text, they all meet. They all intersect in Psalm 33. I think it's worth reading. I might not get through verse 1, but hey, that's alright. Psalm 33. I mean, that that little... Raise there, no more sea is a mouthful, because it, it, it throws a monkey wrench into man's cosmology that tells us we need to prepare for an alien invasion. There's only one alien invasion this world needs to prepare for. And it's an army of aliens, aliens in the sense that the moment they gave their heart to Christ, they're aliens to the people of this planet. And the mothership's in New Jerusalem. And the Messiah's coming with his saints. And he's going to invade. He's going to set up a kingdom. Antichrist knows that. He just wants you to believe his little green man from Mars. Because it can't be God. Because you can overthrow God. He still thinks that. Psalm 33. We are told to rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous. For praise is comely for the upright. Praise the Lord with heart. Sing unto him with the psaltery and an instrument of ten such strings. Sing unto him a new song. Play skillfully with a loud noise. We are told to rejoice and to praise. Now we're told why in verse 4. Why should we rejoice at all times and in all circumstances? For the word of the Lord is right. God's word is right over Man's hypotheses over man's theories, over man's strategies, and over man's tyrannies. Isn't that interesting how that all rhymed? I didn't have that written down. It just came out. (laughs) Interesting. I'm surprised myself. The word of the Lord is right. That's why we can rejoice. All His works are done in truth. That means the works that He does... He does them plain and in truth. We may not understand them, but what He does tell us about them we can trust. They're not dark secrets. The word of the Lord is right. All His works are done in truth. That's what God says about the biblical text. That's why Satan wants to attack it. He loveth righteousness and judgment. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. That's biblical cosmology. God spoke and it came into being. There wasn't a big bang that flung a bunch of stuff off, rotating in thousands of miles an hour some in different directions and it's all spreading outward. God spoke and it was. There's biblical cosmology but Satan's got to attack that. He can't let you think that there's a creator you're going to answer to. Even though he knows it. Even though the devils knew exactly who Jesus was and couldn't keep their mouth shut. What have you to do with us, Jesus, our son of the most high God? They knew him. That's why the devil hides. You know, he, he hides the truth and tries to like, hide the truth in plain sight. He gathereth the waters of the sea together and in heap. He layeth up the depths in storehouses. This is another way of describing what's described there in Genesis 1 about the firmament and the waters. Biblical cosmology. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. Because we can look at His creation with our own eyes and we can observe His works. And we can trust that what God does, He does in truth. We can know there's a Creator. For He spake and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. not across ages and eons. He spoke and it was. That's biblical cosmology. And then what does the Lord do in the context of His cosmology? He brings the counsel of the heathen to naught. Constantly makes us look like fools who think we know better. Just like Job and his friends. They thought they knew a whole lot. God came to give them an education. He maketh the devices of the people of none effect. The counsel of the Lord standeth forever the thoughts of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord and the people whom he hath chosen for his own inheritance. That's biblical chronology right there. God rose up a nation of people Israel to be the instrument whereby his truth goes into the whole world, to be the conduit for the coming of Messiah and the redeeming of Gentiles from all tribes, tongue, and nations. That's history. That's chronology. We can date it. We can trust it. It's all right here. Satan's got to attack it. Verse 13 and 14 ought to throw a monkey wrench into your worldview if you believe the universe looks like what NASA tells you. you, you this ought, ought to shake you up a little bit. The Lord looketh from heaven, he beholdeth all the sons of men. Where God's throne is, he looks down and sees all of us. From where does he look? The place of his habitation, he looketh upon all the inhabitants ...of the earth. That's profound. So simple, but yet profound. Now, that's what God's Word says. I, I find it interesting that same psalm... ...brings all three of those together. All three objects of Satan's attack are there. Biblical cosmology, biblical chronology... ...and biblical, the biblical text. If Satan can undermine these in your mar, mind and your heart then He can undermine your entire worldview, And you can find yourself delusioned and believing a lie. Now, if I were to sum up biblical cosmology, I could sum it up here. God looks down upon all the habitants of the earth in His place of habitation. I think there's another verse. There's two other verses that sum it up. Flip back a few pages to Psalm 24. This is what... The kings of men, the societies of men, the cults of men, the Nassas of men, the Disneys of men, the fake usurping presidents, the, the, the uh, fake Dr. Fauci's. This is what they can't accept. This is what they can't wrap their mind around. Psalm 24.1 The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. This earth belongs to God. The land where people live belongs to God and everything on this planet, every living creature and every human being belongs to God. Mm. That's the core of biblical cosmology. Now, is that what NASA teaches? Is that what they picture when they give us all these artist renditions and make us think they're photos and all this garbage? When NASA tells us they can send 4K video without a single glitch from the surface of Mars and yet I can walk through central North Carolina within 20 miles of a major city and can't get a cell phone signal. (laughs) I mean, do they think I'm an idiot? I mean, maybe I'm kind of stupid, but I'm not that foolish. The earth is the Lord's. Flip over to Isaiah 66, verse 1. This sums up biblical chronology quite nicely. And this is what I believe. This is what I believe. This is the hill I will die on. Not the model, not the specifics, not what the surface of the earth actually looks like, not how the universe is pieced together, because there's a lot of things like Job and his friends discovered we can't know. What we can know is what God reveals to us. And we're going to learn all the great mysteries in the ages to come. And God's going to show us how much we didn't know. Just like He did when He finally spoke up at the end of Job. And he put to silence not only Job's friends, not only Elihu, the young man who thought he knew more than these older guys, but Job himself. Where were you guys when I laid the foundations of the earth? Explain to me. Where does the wild ass go and uh, breed her young? Show me. Where does she go? I mean, today in Ladakh. We used to live in Ladakh, northwest India. As, not as, as the crow flies, not that far from Afghanistan. And it's still a mystery today where the wild ass, you'd rarely see them. but sometimes you'd see these wild asses out there running around. And it's like they just go off and they go off and bear their young, and it's a mystery to this day. But yet we know everything. We know everything. We know how fast the earth moves, we know this and we know that. Isaiah 66:1 Thus saith the Lord, the heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. That's biblical cosmology. In a nutshell. The heaven is God's throne. The earth is His footstool. God sits on His throne and He looks down upon the inhabitants of men. He is intimately involved in His creation. And His creation, the earth, the people of this earth that He sent His Son to redeem, they are the center of His plan and purpose for the universe. Not some crazy planet out there that billions of miles away, and there might be this, or there might be that, or there might be mushrooms here, or this, that, and the other. This earth is the center of God's plan and purpose. Now that flies in the face of man-made science, which is an institution today. It's not a process or a pursuit like it used to be. What are we going to do with that? Do we live like we believe this? Do we live like we believe God sits on His throne and He beholds the children of men? And His plan and purpose is centered right here. Do we live as if we believe that? In the greater context of Isaiah 66, God goes on to say, look, there's a bunch of people there in Israel that think they got it all figured out and they mock you and they, they laugh at you and they think they know me. But this is the one to whom I will look. The one who trembles at my word. That means the one who takes what God says believes it, and trusts it. God says, they are going to be ashamed, the ones that think they know it all. You're going to be honored. Hey, I want to be the guy that trembles at God's word. God says the earth is his footstool, but I believe it. Can I tell you what it's made up of, how big it is, where it goes, how this, that, no, no. I don't need to. But are these things important? Yes. Is it important that God's word can be trusted? Or not? Biblical cosmology. I'd like to share a few things with you that you might find of interest. And we'll just stick with verse 1 today and I'll call it No More Sea." That'll be the nice title for this message. And then next week will be nice. We can talk about the New Jerusalem. The Holy City. The Bible says some things that might... Challenge your worldview. And I just want to throw a few out there today. We're just going to talk about what the Bible says. I'm not going to talk about what this is and what that is. There's a lot of stuff I don't know, but I know God's Word is true and can be trusted because it's proven itself that way in my life many times. There are elements of biblical cosmology that literally fly in the face of the national. Aeronautics and Space Association I don't even know what that A means in NASA. Anybody tell me? I could care less. Flies in the face of NASA. Flies in the face of your school textbooks in the public school. Flies in the face of a society that thinks like Job or like Adam or like Eve that they know everything or we've got it all figured out just because we've got an iPhone in our pocket and we can type something in Wikipedia. Wikipedia It's not truth. It's lies mixed with truth. Do we trust God and His Word? Or do we trust people that are proven to be liars time and time again? If we trust God over the liars, then how can we not live in defiance of their lies? It's a question worth asking. The writer of Hebrews says that we need to rejoice and not fear what man can do unto us. Fear the Lord. Don't fear what man can do unto you. But yet everybody ran away and closed their churches because they were afraid maybe some health inspector would show up or some governor would give them a fine. Give me a fine. I'll throw it in the trash can. You don't have any authority to shut our church down. This jurisdiction doesn't belong to Caesar. But we fear men. Are we going to trust him or the liars? Way back in February, it's amazing to me. You want know, you to know how I study for these messages? I don't sit down and cram. I'll be sitting there thinking about stuff. I'll be reading my Bible in the morning, whatever. And if, I, if something comes to my mind, I love the little notes app in the Apple interface. I'll just go in there and type some things down, some thoughts. And I'll put it in a category called sermon notes. And I'll just go back and draw from it if it's applicable. Sometimes these will become actual posts on Facebook. Facebook for me is a pulpit and always has been. People get mad and blow a gas at it. other people like it. That's just what I do. Okay. But on February first, I wrote this. I think it's worth reading when we consider biblical cosmology. And it may have been a post. I don't know. I can't remember. But I do know I had it in my sermon notes. And it's amazing how applicable it is to this message, because I hadn't even thought about this message. I said this, you have been lied to about so many things in recent months by the media, the powers that be, and even by prominent folks who would fancy themselves spokespeople for the American churches. COVID-19, the vaccine, election fraud, all of this stuff. Can you not now see that we have been lied to about many things, many other things for a long, long time. The truth is always there, oftentimes in plain sight, but we refuse to see it because we are blinded by our pride and our cognitive dissonance. Take science, for example. Oh, how that term is so loosely thrown around today. Science literally means the pursuit of knowledge. Not the conclusions of that pursuit, it's a process, it's a pursuit. Used to be based upon experimentation, real experiments that tested hypotheses. Conclusions were then drawn based upon what could be observed, repeated, and tested. Today, however, mathematical equations have supplanted real experimentation as if the absoluteness of a concept... Is absolute in reality when simple observation proves that it is not. Let me give you a simple example. Consider two glasses. I'm just going to borrow this. I don't know if you're done. I'll drink it. I'm going to do a visual here. All right, that's close enough. Two bottles. One is half empty, one is half full, right? Just depends on how you look at it. So if I were to turn that into a mathematical equation, one half E equals one half what? F. Mathematical equation. Corresponds to reality, right? Now, those of you that are doing algebra and stuff in your math classes, one half E equals one half F, solve the equation. Mathematically, what is correct when you solve that equation? E equals F. E equals F. Conceptually, E, empty, equals full. But is that reality? No. Is empty ever equal to full in reality? Well, what does that tell us? Well, math tells us there is such thing as absolute truth because mathematical equations are solved one way, or if they're solved different ways, they come to the same answer. Two plus two is always four. That's absolute truth. But conceptual mathematics don't always translate into reality. One half E does equal one half F. But E doesn't equal F in this context. One of, a full bottle will never equal an empty bottle. So that's an example of how concepts don't translate into uh, into reality. And almost all of science today, even the stupid data they've spoon feed us and shoved down our throat about COVID, isn't based upon experimentation and testing. It's based upon mathematical data. That's an example of how simple mathematical equation, though absolute in concept, does not equal with reality. And yet all of modern day science is based on mathematical equations. Stuff that cannot be tested. And we just accept it as truth. How much more so with all these complex equations that they use to tell us that we are just random life forms floating around a random planet that rotates around a random star in a random corner of a random galaxy in a random corner of a random ever expanding universe that's Satan's cosmology that's what he wants you to believe and yet with our own eyes going all the way back to the Old Testament prophets they saw the same things we see with our own eyes we can look and see that the stars and their relationship to one another what we call parallax never changes the same Orion's belt that Amos the prophet saw, I can see, hasn't changed. Mm -hmm. Never once throughout human history. Math supposedly proves that, and we believe it because we assume that all science is objective and that no scientist ever has an ulterior motive. Give me a break. How foolish. My friends, we have been lied to about a great many things But the plain truth has always been there for us in God's Word. So what's the point of me saying all this? Stop listening to all the liars. Stop being hypnotized by all their fancy mathematical equations and untestable concepts. What Paul called vain and profane babblings and oppositions of science falsely so-called. The great majority of today's scientists are not scientists at all. They are cultic philosophers and priests who think they are better than you, who think they are gods, and that you must come to them for the answers. Dr. Fauci thinks he's better than you, and that you've got to come to him for the answers. Because like the Pharisees of, of Jesus' day, ye say ye are gods. That's what's there in the Psalms. Next verse, you will all die like men because you're not God. In the New Testament times, this same thing was called Gnosticism. And there is no new thing under the sun, guys. Nothing's new. Am I a conspiracy theorist? No. I don't look for a conspiracy under every rock, but I am a conspiracy realist. From the dawn of human history, there's been one giant conspiracy of that old serpent... To overthrow God's plan and purpose for this creation and, the, and to undermine the word of the Lord and His Messiah. The yea, God hath said society. That's the conspiracy. And it's 6,000 years old. Even older than that because Satan fell from heaven before that. And though this great conspiracy will never succeed and though the Lord has foiled it time and time and time again yet many a deceived soul has been led to destruction by its false claims the lies we've seen concerning COVID-19, vaccines, election fraud, they ought to cause a wise man, not a fool, but they ought to cause a wise man to step back a moment and start retracing his steps and calling everything he's been told by these godless elites into question. Doesn't the Bible say in Romans, yea, let God be true and every man a liar? Why do we got to keep apologizing for God's word? We need to step back and call everything these devils, these from the pit of hell have lied to us about. Like I told a, a black gentleman the other day and we, ag- we agreed together, I was walking through a rural black community. I said, these lying devils want you and I to hate each other because they hate all of us and we've got to stop listening to them. We've got to turn them off. We can trust God. The heaven is His throne. The earth is His footstool. That was something I just wrote, and I happened to see it as I was walking out the door this morning. I said, man, that's, that's not a coincidence. Sheer profundity. Simple. There are some things that God's Word says that are interesting. Turn to Genesis 1.15. Let's challenge our... Worldview a bit with God's Word. Genesis one fifteen says God on the uh, uh, fourth day, verse fifteen, or well, He made two lights to divide the day from the night, the sun and the moon. Verse fifteen, and let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth. And it was so, God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to reflect the greater light. Is that what it says? The lesser light to rule the night, He made the stars also and He set them in the firmament of heaven to give light upon the earth. So here we're told that God made the sun the moon and the stars for the earth. That's what he made them for. He made them for the earth to give light upon the earth. Do we believe that? Would NASA agree? No. Because your sun's just a random star. And all them other stars out there don't have anything to do with the earth. And they could never fall to the earth, like Revelation says, because they're umpteen billions of light years away. I don't know how they could ever know that. So, the Bible tells us the sun and the moon were created for the earth. Verse 16 tells us that the moon itself is a light. But God says the moon is a light. It doesn't say it's a reflector. It's a light. Now, there's a, some of you guys don't, wouldn't appreciate this because you're not into hiking and camping and hiking through the night and all that kind of crazy stuff that we end up doing sometimes. But there's a common sense thing if you're in the wilderness or in the backcountry at night and it's clear. Now, in the sun, if I'm hot and it's 95 degrees and I know this, I know exactly what to do to cool off, what do I look for? Shade. Shade. I got to get out of the sun's light. Guys, I'm telling you, I remember down in Duplin County uh, weeks ago, I'm walking and I'm, I'm just sweating hot, the shade of a telephone pole gave me some relief. Even the shade of a telephone pole helped a little bit. What about if you're walking at night? Like Bethany and Eric and I were doing, trying to find our way off of Granite Peak, get back to our camp, and we're freezing cold. It's clear. The moon and the stars are at night, and we stopped to try to get some sleep, and I couldn't sleep. I was so cold. We made a colossal mistake something we should have known better about when it came to finding a campsite. We, You probably didn't know this. Where do you not want to camp at night if you need to stay warm? You don't want to get in the direct moonlight. Moonlight's cold. You get in the dark, you find a dark shadow. Just like the shadow in the day cools you down, it's common sense if you're a hiker and a backcountry camper. Find a shadow at night. To give you a little more warmth. Mm. Or if you're hot, get, get moonlight. Moonlight cools. That's common sense. Go test it yourself. You don't have to believe me. Well, I don't know about you, but I've never seen something that reflects light take what's normally warm and turn it into something that's cool. It doesn't work that way. Go use a magnifying glass to reflect sunlight on some ants. Does it cool things down? No. Magnifies it, burns them up. So, the Bible says that the moon is a light, but the elites tells us it only reflects the sun. And yet, moonlight is, has a cooling effect when sunlight has a warming effect. I mean, can we not at least ask the question? Can we not at least scratch our heads and say, man, what's this all about? Or can we trust God's word? Genesis 1, 7 through 8. I I quoted it this morning. I won't read it again. You can read it as I said before. And as we see here in Revelation 21, verse 1, there are waters above and below the firmament. Not clouds floating around in the firmament. Waters above and waters below. Have you ever wondered? I mean, this is just a question I have. I'm sure some elite or some young dude that took a few philosophy classes at App State probably knows all the answers. But have you ever wondered why the sky is blue? And yet, when we supposedly see earth in the daytime from outer space, you see right down to it. And the waters that we never see as blue because of water vapor when you're flying over the ocean in an airplane are bright blue. I mean, what is the blue up there? Is it the waters above the firmaments? I don't know. I mean, this is just what God's word says. It's a question worth asking. I don't have an answer. Isaiah 42. This is where I'm going to repent to you guys this morning. Because I have used this to make a point that this scripture is not making. So I repent. Don't don't make this point because that's not what this scripture says. And the reason I can tell you is because I got myself in a situation in ministry where I had to learn a little Hebrew. And what's translated here is correct, and we, we need to stop explaining it and call it something else. We need to stop doing what they're doing at the Creation Museum because the language doesn't allow it. And I've been guilty of trying to make a, make a point on a college campus to make God's word agree with man made hypotheses, and we don't need to. Isaiah 40, verse 22. Amazing chapter, it can give you strength and resolve in the days in which we're living. We all know the uh, verses, the familiar verses about mounting up with wings as eagles at the end of the chapter, but God is described here, we know He sits in His throne and the earth is His footstool, but His footstool is described here in Isaiah 40, 21, have you not known... Have you not, this is verse 21, have you not heard, has it not been told you from the beginning? People have known this from the beginning. Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? And this is the prophets rebuking Israel for worshiping idols and forgetting about the one who holds his entire creation in his hands. It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in. So here we're told that God sits over the circle of the earth and He stretches out the heavens like a tent. You know, the firmament stretched out like a tent. He sits over that. Now, I've often pointed to this scripture and I've said to people on a college campus, Now, guys, I'm just telling you that this is a false argument to make from this scripture. I'm not drawing any conclusions about things that I can't possibly know apart from God's Word. Don't put words in my mouth. Don't label me. Don't label me with a label here. I'm just asking a question. I've made this argument on a college campus, and I've even said it here in the very message that I mentioned at the beginning from years ago, and I repent. I said, see, the Bible teaches us that God has, sits over the sphere or the globe of the earth. See, the earth is a globe. The Bible said it was a globe long before man discovered this. See, the Bible can be trusted. All right, that sounds like a good argument, right? Yeah? But that's not what this says. And so I'm taking a man-made framework and I'm forcing it upon God's Word to try to make convince people that God's Word is true. And that is a false argument. I repent. Why? I mean, I just... Started learning some Hebrew to speak with the Israelis, and I'm seeing something here. Whoa! Wait a minute. That word "circle" there means exactly what it says. Circle. Okay, it's the Hebrew word "chug." Means circle. Doesn't mean spear or globe. Doesn't mean that. And how do I know? Very easy. Turn over to Isaiah 22.18. There's another word that means exactly that. And Isaiah uses it. Isaiah 22.18, he's describing what God's going to do to Israel. He's going to judge them for idolatry. And he says in verse 18, He will surely, surely, violently turn and toss thee like a ball into a large country. God's going to scatter Israel to the nations and judge her. Toss her like a ball, like a sphere. Dur in Hebrew means ball. Or a sphere. So we're told God sits over the circle of the earth and it's wrong for us to use God's Word to try to persuade people that man-made cosmology agrees with God's Word. And I'm not drawing a conclusion here. Don't label me. Don't label me. Don't call me what you want to call me. Don't do it. Not drawing a conclusion. What I'm saying is the Bible says God sits over the circle of the earth. And that word does not mean a ball. Because Isaiah uses the word for ball in a few chapters earlier. It doesn't mean that. It means circle. So when I read that and how he describes the heavens, I'm suddenly... Scratching my head because it doesn't match what I've always been told. Now, you may not want to hear that. You may shake your head and think I'm crazy. Are we going to believe God's Word or not? Mm-hmm. But I should never have used that, that verse to try to make a point that I didn't need to make. God doesn't need me to defend His Word. I can defend it on itself. Martin Luther said the Bible's like a lion in a cage. Just let that thing out. It will defend itself. Doesn't need me. Doesn't need you. The Old Testament prophets saw the exact same star patterns and constellations that we see today. Going back before the days of Moses, in the book of Job, we're told that God does great things in His creation that we can't find out unless God reveals it to us. Job 9. And it talks about the stars that move around the earth and it mentions how God brings out Mazaroth and brings out Arcturus and, I, and Orion. He brings them out. They go into their circuits. Well, we're told that it's us that's moving. Not the heavens, but the Old Testament prophets, Job, his friends, Elihu, they're seeing the same patterns we are. Amos said, look to the the Pleiades, Orion, it's he that made these things that you need to fear. That's what Amos says. They saw the exact same constellations we see today. Now here's my question for you. How is that possible if what we're told by man, man's elites, by the NASA's and the quote-unquote scientists and Fauci's and all that, How is that possible if what they say is true? How is it that the stars don't move in relationship to each other? Orion's belt, the three-star belt's always been the same place. Job saw it. Amos saw it. We are told that the earth rotates on its axis at 1,000 miles an hour at the equator. That the earth itself is rotating around the sun at 66. 66 thousand miles per hour and that the sun is flying around the milky way galaxy at 515 miles an hour and that all of that's expanding outwards from a big bang now i'd like to know how in the world people know that has that been tested and i'm also trying to figure out how if that's all going on how can i put my coffee in a cup on the table and i don't even see a ripple Oh, well, it's relativity. When you're in a plane, you know, and you're flying and you're moving or you're in a boxcar, you don't know you're moving. Oh, oh, yeah, you do. Look out the window. You can be in a plane all day long and not feel the motion you would feel outside the plane. But, man, if that thing moves just a little bit, you better be holding your coffee. and not I don't ever put my coffee on a tray in the plane, never, because it's going to fall, and I don't want coffee all over. But this is an example. Based on those figures, I just want to show you how something. This is what we're supposed to believe the earth is doing. <laughs> this is what they tell us is happening. But yet the stars in relationship to each other never change. And the Bible mentions the same constellations that we see today. I'll just let you look at that for a little bit. There's no stellar parallax. They don't move. They're, they're in the same positions in relation to each other. Now they move around the sky, around Polaris. Polaris doesn't ever move, the North Star. How's that possible? Do we ever stop? Do, do we believe what God's Word says? Or do we just... And then the last thing that I think is interesting, so, turn to Psalm 93... I'm, I'm, I'm going to finish it. Psalm 93, verse one. The Lord reigneth; he is clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed with strength, where we ha- wherewith he hath girded himself. The world also is established, that it cannot be moved. The Bible says here that the earth is fixed. And it cannot be moved. Just like his throne is fixed and cannot be moved. Verse 2 The throne is fixed and established, and so is the earth. The heavens is his throne, his throne is fixed, and the earth, which is his footstool, can't be moved. Now, if the earth's moving all over the place and God's sitting in his throne and the footstool's going all over the place, then how in the world can he keep his feet on it? I'm just, I'm just telling you what it says. The world also established that it cannot be moved. Now, can we trust that? Because if we can't and we've got to explain it away, then we better be explaining away John 3.16 because we can't trust it either. The Bible says, don't label me, don't label me. The earth is fixed. This isn't talking about the land masses either. They change and move. Tectonics, plates grinding, land breaking off into the sea or getting flooded. But the earth itself doesn't move. But this is what they're telling us. Can they both be true? Some would say yes. Maybe a creation scientist would say yes. But I mean, at some point, are we going to believe what we're told in God's word and what we see and what we can test? Or are we just going to keep listening to people? Did you know, are you aware that there were actual scientific experiments in the late 1800s and early 1900s that proved the earth was stationary? Experiments that were tested. But you didn't ever learn about it. Because you don't learn what's true and real. You don't get an education in public education anymore. You get brainwashed and indoctrinated. <clears throat> but there were actual scientific experiments that sought to prove that the earth was moving to fit their cosmology, that old Kabbalistic cosmology that goes back to them Baal worshippers in Israel long ago, and yet they failed. There was a speech that President Eisenhower gave. Um, Let me see if I can find... I wrote it down it's worth listening to it was on January 17th 1961 it would have been his farewell address just go listen to it on YouTube it's a black and white we should have paid attention we should have listened we should have heeded the warning he warned about the dangers of the military industrial complex that seeks to Provide security at the expense of liberty and freedom. And he warned that we, we were at a new place after World War II where there's the need for this giant military and this giant means to defend ourselves and this industry to prop it up. We better be careful and guard. Because we're going to lose our liberties and freedoms. So he warned about the media in, I mean the military industrial complex. Today I would call it the government media complex. It's the same thing. But go listen to that short speech. Even President Eisenhower warned that these economic not to not to not to take anything for granted. He said, take nothing for granted. And that there are not only economic and sp- political factors involved, there's also spiritual. There's the spiritual side of it. It's actually pretty profound. Um, and he said that there were grave implications for taking everything we're told by the, the military industrial complex for granted. Take nothing for granted. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry com- can compel the proper meshing of the military-industrial machine of defense with our peaceful methods and goods so that security and liberty can prosper together. Be careful. Be alert and knowledgeable as a citizenry. That's the only thing that's going to keep the meshing of these things from taking away the things we hold dear. Have we been alert? No. Have we listened to President Eisenhower? No. We've been asleep at the wheel. We just buy everything we're told. We don't stop and ask questions like I'm trying to do today. There were experiments that sought to disprove that the earth was stationary. I watched an interview not too long ago with a 102-year-old lady. She's dead by now. This has probably been a few years ago. And she was in public school in the early 1920s in America. And they were asking her what she was taught in public school. This is just, again, don't label me. I'm just relating to you what this individual was taught. said she was taught as a child. Now, I don't know if it changed by Gigi's Day or not. She said in in science class, we were taught that the world was flat. And that all the heavens and all that stuff was made... To give light on the earth. I mean, I don't know why a 102-year-old woman would lie about that. I mean, if I pick up a 1958 edition of the Encyclopedia Americana, and I look up Antarctica, and I read the entry on Antarctica, I'm told that when the uh, uh, explorations, I think it was, uh, I forget which one it was, went down there, they discovered... That in the interior of Antarctica, they couldn't get, they only went so far, they discovered that as far as they went, the firmament at that point was only 13,000 feet in elevation. And I'm scratching my head thinking this was in an encyclopedia in 1958. What in the world? What in the world's happening here? What are we being told? What what are we being lied to about? I think. These things are kind of hard to comprehend, and I won't try to go into detail. But there was the, the famous Aries experiment in 1871, A-I-R-Y-S. It involved using a telescope and why, if a star was directly overhead, you had to tip the telescope to get the star in the center. You couldn't just point it straight up. You had to tip the telescope. And so the thought was one of two things is happening. Either the, either the Earth is moving Or the stars are moving. And so in order to prove that the stars were moving and not... I mean, the earth was moving, not the stars, he put water in the telescope because the water would refract the light and slow it down. And so if the earth was moving, the telescope, when water is added, would have to be tipped even more to keep the same star in the center. However, if it's the stars that are moving and not the earth then you could put water in the telescope and leave it at the same angle and you'd still see the star in the center. Well, the great Aries experiment failed. The star was still in the center of the telescope. You didn't have to move it with water added to it. That seems interesting to me. It proved that incoming light was moving past a stationary telescope. That was 1871. 1871. 1887, the Michelson-Morley experiment, light beams were shined in the direction of the earth's supposed motion and also perpendicular to that motion. And what that proved is that light wasn't propelled faster when it traveled along with the motion of the earth, that whether it was with the motion or perpendicular light reached its refracting mirror at the same time. And so the laws of motion based on this experience don't apply to light. And so one of two things, either the earth is still and not moving or the speed of light is always the same. Those are the two conclusions you can draw. Now, Based on the failed experiment of Aries in 1871, I mean, I think the conclusion's obvious. But no, it must be, not the plain sense, it must be that light never changes speed. And that's what Einstein's theory of relativity assumes, is that the speed of light is constant. Let me ask you something. How can we possibly know that or prove that? If the universe is billions of light years across, how do we know that light's speed is never affected by long distances, by gravity, by all of these motions in the heavens? Who, man, what arrogance it is to claim that we know all of this stuff. So there have actually been experiments that delve into these things. Here's what Einstein said himself about the Michelson-Morley experiment. <clears throat> if Michelson-Morley's experiment had not brought us into serious embarrassment. No one would have even regarded my theory of relativity. You see, the scientists were trying to prove that the earth wasn't as it's spelled out here in these scriptures, but that we were this. And so, oh, we'll prove it. We'll show light this and that. And in this experiment, Isaac Newton, I mean, uh, uh, Albert Einstein said <laughs> made our model flat-out embarrassing. But, you know what? They never would have even listened to my theory of relativity if if that hadn't happened. So what happens? 1913 or 1915 to 1916, Einstein develops his E equals MC squared, this theory of relativity, that presumes light to be always traveling at the same speed, can't be altered. And this was the moving-off point. From testing and objective experimentation to theoretics. That was the transition point. And that's why all the science they tell you about COVID isn't based on experience and data and long-term testing. It's all based on theoretics. It's all based on presumed data. And you can go right back to the theory of relativity. Changed it all. Relativity allowed the idea of Baal sun worship, exactly what the priests in the temple that Ezekiel was shown in chapter 8 were doing. Heliocentrism, where the sun is the center of it all. It allowed that idea to survive direct contradicting experimental evidence. It was the breaking off point. And science has gone that direction ever since. It's considered an institution, not a process that's why our scientists and our health experts aren't going to sit back and do like they did with polio and with smallpox and other uh, treatments for these diseases. And they test them and it goes through this experiments. They look at people in control groups and then they decide, you know what, this is an effective way to battle this disease. Experiments, test them. But nothing they told us about COVID, how it's transmitted. I'm not saying COVID's not real. I'm not saying it's not bad. And I'm not saying it doesn't kill people. It does. But the things they're claiming they know, they can't possibly know. Because it's not based on testing and long-term experimentation. And that's par for the course. We need to remember that when somebody tells you, follow the science. That's why they don't want to audit the elections in Arizona, Georgia. Virginia, other places. That's science. That's counting, testing, experimentation. But no, 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 no. We can't do that. The mathematics tells us. The mathematics, it's safe. It's safe. The theoretics, it was a safe and fair election. Give me a break. But guys, are, are you surprised that while we're where we are, where we are, we simply don't take God at His word. Mm-hmm. And I'm as guilty as the next man. I'm going to end there today. Um, I'd like to Next time I want to just briefly talk about the Samyak experiment of 1913. It's it's a little complicated. It's also interesting to, to consider. And a couple other things that God's Word says. And so here in 21 verse 1 we're introduced to a biblical cosmology. An important part of that cosmology that God created on the second day is removed. And God now comes to dwell with men. And then we'll move into the second thing John sees, the new Jerusalem. And verse 3 and 4 is going to tell us why there is no more sea in the new creation. And then you're going to hear the words of that song we sung this morning quoted almost verbatim. That comes right from Revelation 21. And man, I can't wait to talk about what it means when it says there's no more death. No more tears, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain. All that's passed away. Guys, that's what's coming. We can trust God. We can trust what He says about His creation. We can trust him about what's coming. Let's be those that believe Him. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. He that cometh to God must believe that He is. Believe in God and believe that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. That's believe God. You want to be right with God? You've got to do more than believe in Him. You need to believe Him. Take Him at His word. Stop listening to all the lies. Turn the media off. Turn the liars off. Stop listening to the fake president, the usurper who can't put two senses together. Stop listening to the CDC. The CDC are cultists. It's a cult. It's a bail cult. Now you may not like that. But I'd like to think that my travels around the world, reading the CDC recommendations and everything, that has earned me a little street cred here. Stop listening to all this mess. God will give people what they fear, even Christians, if you, if you quit fearing Him and, stop and, and listen to all this fake news and, and, and get scared to death like these pastors. These pastors that ran off from their churches wouldn't surprise me if they did die of COVID. Because God gives people what they fear when they won't fear them. That's exactly what He told Israel. I'm going to give you the very thing you fear. Job himself was wise enough to see his own sin in chapter 3. Job didn't sin against God with his mouth. He didn't didn't blaspheme God, but Job had a problem. In chapter 1 we see he was OCD about his kids. Oh my goodness, they might slip up. I got to go offer this sacrifice and I got to do this. And And then what does he say in chapter 3 when he starts to open his mouth? The things that I feared most have come upon me. Now, God's turning of Job's captivity was merciful and gracious. If we're those that have lived in fear, there's an opportunity for us to stop. And for God to turn our captivity like He did for Job. Stop listening to the liars. And let's listen to God. Let's don't fear. Stop fearing. I mean, there's so many people in Canada right now that are fearful to open their churches because they're getting a $20,000 fine. Take your fine and throw it in the trash can and go to prison. Be willing to go to prison for the gospel. And it'll go away. But we're scared. We're so scared of all this stuff. God, give it to us. I hope we'll learn our lesson like Job did. I hope I will. I hope I will. All right, let's, let's close. I'm sorry I've run a little long, guys. I had not been able to preach in a while. I just got to start preaching. I can't stop. Father God, we thank you for your word. This may have been the longest message I've ever preached. And I trust you took it where you would have it go. Bless the food we're about to eat. I pray these believers were uplifted today. Lord, it really is that simple. You have spoken. We can trust you. We may not understand everything. We can't pontificate and claim to know all this stuff. Because Job and his friends didn't know. And one day all these mysteries will be revealed. But we can trust you in what you said. Help us to learn to discern between truth and error. And that can only come by your Holy Spirit. It can't come from our own wisdom and our own education and our own uh accomplishments it must come from your spirit so we just want to know the truth lord we don't claim to know this or that we just want to know the truth and we believe we confess that we believe what your word says and that this earth and what you've created it for has a plan and a purpose and you're going to be glorified and the messiah who was crucified and was buried and rose from the dead is going to be glorified And that one day there will be a new heaven and a new earth and no more sea because the tabernacle of God will dwell with men. We won't even have to think about climbing up to it because it will come down to us. And we long for that day just as Abraham did, Lord. A city whose buildings and foundations are made of God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.